This content is for institutional investors and information purposes only. It does not contain investment, financial, legal, tax or any other advice and should not be relied upon for this purpose. The materials are not tailored to your particular personal and or financial position. If you require advice based on your specific circumstances, you should contact a professional advisor. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of publication, are subject to change without notice and do not necessarily reflect Mercer's opinions. Reference to private markets raising $1.2 trillion is sourced from Bain & Company's 2022 Global Private Equity Report. Lagged performance reporting, managers coming back to market quicker than ever, illiquidity. Private markets is an asset class not without its challenges, but there must be something there, right? Why does it get so much attention? Because private markets has an incredible potential to generate high returns for investors' portfolios. It's why we see so much capital flowing into the market today. Private markets just hit an all-time high in 2021, raising $1.2 trillion. Welcome to Critical Thinking, Critical Issues. Today's podcast is on private markets. Okay, so the excitement is there, but the excitement was also there for things like pets.com and linens and things. There is no way to know that you are making with 100% certainty the right decisions. But if you have no institutional knowledge, your chance of getting it 100% right would be at the lowest point. It would basically be luck. But with each skill that we acquire, each tool we gain, we get closer to that 100%. And after today's podcast, you'll be that much closer. My name is Amy Ridge, and I'm a partner at Mercer Alternatives. I work with many institutional clients, helping them build, maintain their private markets portfolios, which makes me very selfishly excited to talk with my two guests today. Both are PhD researchers, each of which have been published many times over on this exact topic. We have Dr. Ashby Monk. He is currently serving as the Executive and Research Director for Stanford's new research initiative on long-term investing. His focus is on the design, governance, management, and operation of the world's largest asset owner investors, with a particular focus on technologies that help them make decisions. And Billy Charlton, our own self-proclaimed recovering academic, he is Mercer's global head of private markets data analytics and research. He has over 30 years of experience and leads everything private markets for us here at Mercer. Thank you both for being here today. Thank you. Thank you. I think I need to get into recovery too. (laughs) You can join Billy. Billy. Yeah. Join the journey. (laughs) (laughs) Billy, I saw you you recently wrote about ways that we as investors can actually hurt ourselves and not even know it, which was a little scary. Um, But before we dive in there, out of all the topics that are relevant in today's market, I did wonder why did you choose this topic? Why now? Yeah, it's, it's something I've been running around my head for quite a number of years. One of the challenges, even though I'm a recovering academic, um, I've always been fascinated with the learning function and how do people take the information that they that they made decisions with and either improve it or, or learn from those experiences. 
And what I realized was private markets typically has a number of characteristics that make learning very difficult. You know, usually in, in a learning function, you want quick feedback, you want precise feedback, you want to tie that feedback to certain behaviors. So, you know, if you, if you touch a hot stove, you get burned quickly and you learn not to touch a hot stove again. Um, what I realized is in private equity, private markets, you have a long holding period where you really don't know whether the decision you made today was the right decision for three, five, six years. Meanwhile, you're still going along that path of making decisions with the same criteria. An another problem you have with it is small portfolios. And, and you, you touched on this, Amy, a, a second ago. One of the critical things across all investments is it skill or luck. Did they get lucky in picking the right sector or did were they smart about what they did with it? In private markets, you typically have very small portfolios. In public markets, you might have a thousand transactions to look like look at. In a private markets portfolio, you might have 10 or 15 transactions to look at over 10 years. So that, that small portfolio thing makes it very difficult to separate out that skill and luck component to it. Uh, the other thing about it is the noisiness of the returns. Uh, you don't know there is always you know, a sector aspect to private markets, but most private market fund managers do not rotate sectors. Their, their skill set is tied directly into the sectors that they have experience with. Uh, so it's not so much a sector selection, it's what did they do with it. But again, because you have a small portfolio, you just don't know whether that decision they made or that investment they made in that company was due to their value creation or was it due to they just picked the right sector. And then finally, um, one of the challenges in, in, in private markets, and I'm sure Ashby can talk to this quite a bit, is I know very much what my fund managers do specifically. I don't know what everybody else's fund managers are doing. Uh, and so you don't have the ability to benchmark very clearly against other people. So these things kind of factor into if you've, and I mentioned this a second ago, if you develop a criteria by which to make decisions in private markets, you may not know whether those that's the right criteria for three, four, five years. Meanwhile, you're continuing to build out that portfolio. This is compounded because, and I think I was thinking about this after we talked the other day, this is compounded because private markets has become much bigger part of people's portfolios today than it used to be. It, you know, it used to be five, 10% maybe. Now it's going to 10, 15, 20, 30%. And so when you become a bigger part of the portfolio, these critical learning issues and the ability to benchmark properly become much more important to the investors. And I think that's factoring into it. Um, you know, there, there is much more attention in the space, as you, as you mentioned, Amy, and, and it, you know, I think some of these factors are, are very challenging for new people coming in. On top of that, if you have staff changes, if you, you, if the people that made the decisions three, four years ago leave and now you get a new group of staff coming in, now you're starting the, the, the clock over again. So all these factors kind of make it a difficult challenge, um, in, in the, to, to invest uh, successfully in, in private markets. I, I definitely see that, especially that information limitation piece with clients, you know, benchmarking is the most imperfect exercise, but we try to do it and we try to compare a fund to the larger universe, but you don't know what each underlying fund is in a, in a benchmark. Um, so to your point, it's hard to know, well, what's great in your portfolio versus is it better than what I have in mine? 
Um, even doing a peer analysis is really hard because there's all these anomalies in how people invest. Um, so Ashby, as as Billy mentioned, you actually Hi. spend a lot of time researching long-term investing. Um, and you you spend some time on the the investor side. And so I wonder how have you seen issues that you have found just come up again and again? And why do you think that is? Um, so walk us yeah. through your research. Yeah, no, thanks. Thanks for having me. This is, I agree with almost everything Billy said. I, I only say almost because I'm still trying to figure out if, if I can find something that we can debate. But so far, I don't think I have anything. Um, I spend my life looking at pension funds, sovereign funds, endowments, foundations, and I can tell you they increasingly see private equity, private assets as a requirement to meet their promises. You know, they've made some promise out there to a university to fund a program or to, you know, some pension system to, to fund old age retirement. And in order to meet that expected return, they need private equity. So I think part of the reason we're all so interested in this space is it is this critical input um, to meeting, you know, the promises. And so you're seeing it ramp very quickly. I mean, it's like you wouldn't even describe it as an alternative asset anymore. It's very, very much a conventional asset. Um, and, and I think I was thinking about this. I think there's three things that come up a lot. Um, the first thing is, alignment and access. So as you're moving into the private markets, private equity, venture capital in particular, um, you, you're going to be partners with these uh, GPs for 10, 14 years. I mean, some of the life cycle of these funds go out to 18 years. Now that we have um, evergreen funds, maybe you're partners forever. Uh, and, and so ensuring that you have an alignment of interest between the limited partners and the general partners is not a trivial thing to do, especially if you're really in the business of, um, you know, shuffling up and down Sandhill Road or doing your best to get access to a top private equity fund. And so I hear that coming up time and time again, that like LPs being forced to sign terms that they find onerous or uh, misaligned. The second thing just has to do with transparency. Like there's just not enough data or see-through either into the underlying portfolios or as to Billy's point into what, you know, other funds are doing for benchmarks or what the SEC is taking on the fees and costs, um, let alone the risks in the portfolio. You know, the, we really do a good job of scoring public equities for different factors and, um, and, and really defining all the things that are, are driving the return. If you think about private equities, these are still just equities, but I can't think of a toolkit that is really disaggregating the, the risks embedded into these organizations. So that's the second thing. And then the, the third thing kind of goes to the time horizon issue that Billy mentioned. It takes some time to ramp these programs. So there's, there's time to get up to speed and through the J curve. The first few years of building a private equity program, money's going out the door. You're paying fees and, you know, it, it doesn't look immediately great. And so you're seeing some organizations say, well, can I get up that J curve through a secondary? Um, but then also, how do we assess performance? You know, a lot of this is is marks, um, accounting marks, rather than um, you know marking to a market. Uh, and so, if you're just rolling forward marks through an accounting based process, it can be challenging to really get a strong performance signal. 
um, you know, I can re- remember a lot of funds that were marking up assets and then, you know, not returning what people thought. And so, so I, I just hear those three big things, alignment, transparency, and then, you know, path to getting the, the time horizon, the asset class are all challenges. Yeah, we always we always joke about um, the fundraising valuations because miraculously, a lot of valuations tend to go up during times of fundraising. So I, I agree with you. Isn't that interesting? I, I, it's a miracle. Uh, <laughs> and all these, they're all, they're all top quartile. The, yeah. The, the write downs occur after the fundraising is done. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> And so that, so a lot of what you guys have said is on kind of the LP investor side, but I wonder, do you see some of these issues also being applicable to GPs? Yeah, I think one of the things uh, that's kind of curious to me is oftentimes because we can't, not only do we not have views into what other fund managers doing, the fund managers don't have views into what other fund managers are doing. And so oftentimes I think they don't quite understand their peer set very well either. Um, and I think the challenge is, again, I come back to the small portfolio issue. Um, if you only take 10 shots on goal and you score on two or three of those shots, is it something that you did well or was it something that you, you just happened to be in the right segment at the right time and, and do it well? And, and I think that just as it is for us, to, it's hard for us to benchmark fund managers I think it's hard for, for fund managers to understand whether they're actually creating value in their portfolio companies or not as well. Um, and I think that that's a big, that's a big challenge. Uh, so I think there, some of the exact same issues we deal with are what the GPs and, and, and to be, to be frank about it, you know, GPs tend to be very successful people. They tend to have very high egos. And so do you admit that you made a mistake in a company or do you, do you, do you take all the successes as as positive reinforcement of what you're doing and ignore the negative uh, results as part of that as well. Yeah, we've definitely seen that where, okay, it's great when you have a lessons learned page in the deck. That's okay to see when you, when everything's just discounted as, oh, that was market circumstance or that was unique. Or that um, we've got the wrong CEO. You know, yeah. and, and I talked about that, that the paper we referenced earlier, which is coming out as draft right now, hopefully it'll come out later. I referenced that is, well, it was a bad CEO, but who hired the CEO? Lessons learned. We invested in the wrong companies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's always the joke I tell students when I do a PE 101 class is it's always the strategy that, that made a lot of sense at the time, but doesn't make sense now. Or it's the partners that left that were responsible for those 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 bad outcomes. Um, so it, there's always ways to, and I think that's one of the difficulties. I think for from the GP perspective, and I mentioned this in the paper a little bit. Um, it's very important to have a post investment review process that you're very honest and you you look at say. What did do we, what did we do right? What did we do wrong? And are those things fixable? Are those, are those changeable? And that's, that I think is oftentimes very, and what I've seen is the better fund managers are better at that post investment review process. The ones that just kind of brush it off as, Oh, you know, the regulations changed or the CEO is bad or whatever. They tend not to improve their process over the iteration of their funds. 
That's a really good point. Yeah. Okay, so we've gone over the doom and gloom of challenges. Let's put that behind us and let's talk solutions. Ashby, you're doing really interesting work with the use of data and AI. I loved hearing you about talk about it the other day and how that can actually help decision-making and risk assessments. Yeah. Can you walk me through what you found to help get people closer to that 100% certainty I mentioned earlier? Yeah, I think the first thing to note is, is asset allocation doesn't happen in a vacuum. You know, we all kind of point to the Brinson work, which, which said that, I don't know, 93.5% of the quarterly variation in performance is due to asset allocation. But asset allocation isn't the base of the pyramid. The base of the pyramid is your operating model. And sometimes we call that the endowment model. Sometimes we call it the Canadian model. But that's a model of capabilities and know-how and governance and all these things coming together. And so one of those key parts of an operating model, yes, it's the people, it's the process, but it is also the information and technology. And, and increasingly, those are very important parts of your operating model. Um, and so if you're going to change asset allocation, often the first thing a board of directors would ask is like, well, can we support that asset allocation? Um, and so as an example, as we're moving more into private equity, as we were talking about, we're seeing asset owner investors invest heavily in their cash flow modeling tools. Um, and I actually think that's one of the keys um, to success is having really sophisticated models um, that allow you to, first of all, understand your pacing, understand your um, unfunded commitments and your liquidity profile under certain scenarios. So that means modeling into the future. Typically, this is done in a spreadsheet and it is done um, with capital market assumptions that might be outdated. And, and so the sophistication that I'm working on now is about um, that cash flow. Because if you can redeploy that cash flow and not over reserve cash to meet a capital call or not over diversify your exposure in private markets so that no single capital call, you know, breaks the bank, um, then you can really begin to build an asset allocation framework that is um, e even more powerful and more aggressive than you would have had. So we study the operating model. Uh, we study transparency. So some of the issues I mentioned before around, you know, not really understanding the risks, costs, benchmarks, things like that. Um, we have to automate this stuff. You know, we, we, I can't believe that this stuff still comes in PDFs that are non-standard. Like that is the state of the art right now is a PDF document emailed. It's like, that seems crazy. You know, we, we have robots flying on Mars right now, like right now. And yet we are getting PDFs from our private equity managers. So, um, those are the types of big projects we're working on at Stanford, and it's it's all about bringing technology and empowering these um, long-term investors just to have more information when they make a decision. Yes, we get those PDFs often, so I am happy to hear that there will be pro pro progress on that soon, hopefully. Um, and I know we have a lot of CIOs tuning in today, and Ashby... I am sure that they would love to hear what you found on just the organizational structure side. I know there's optimal structures and things that can enhance better decision-making. What have you found on the org side? 
Yeah, well, well, look, like I said, I think your operating model can really set you up for success in in private equity, for sure. And most of that has to do with being a good partner to your general partners um, around things like co-investments. So you see tons of big asset owners, less so on the foundation endowment side, but very much so on the pension and sovereign side, doing co-invest to blend, oops, I just banged my thing, to blend down uh, the cost of private equity. Let's do directs alongside our GP, no fee, no carry. Well, you, you negotiate that into your, um, into your limited partner agreement, um, but it's hard to do. And it's hard to be fast and become a good partner. And so I've seen a lot of organizations redefine their delegation frameworks in order to push power to the edge of the organization, which then allows the portfolio managers to transact quickly. That means um, a few things. You need data systems to power a more data-driven decision-making process rather than a process decision process. <laughs> we use investment committees today in many of these organizations because we don't trust our data. So everything has to flow back to an investment committee and human beings with experience and knowledge kind of assess the, in quotes, facts, um, and then make a decision. Well, if you get comfort around your data, again, that's organizational. That's about really getting clean, good data that you can then feed through the system into chief investment officers, chief risk officers, and that type of data then can empower new delegations. And it's delegation frameworks in my mind that are one of the kind of most important organizational tools to deliver out performance. If you showed me 20 pension funds, delegation frameworks, I could pick out the best pension funds in the world just by reading how do they delegate? How do they design a delegation framework that it pushes them to win deals when they're competing? So that that's a big area of focus for us. The, the governance and the technology that underpins a really smart delegation framework. So delegate, so your optimal, who would be the winner in that delegation? You have in model, would it be the one that has delegated down to a certain level? Is it wider delegation? What, when you say you could pick the best? Good call. Yeah, no, I would say it's, you would look at size of um, commitment that can be made by the team and how it's overseen, right? So the size of the commitment made by a portfolio manager, maybe they can say yes to a deal that's 50 million. Um, and then they have to go to the head of private equity for a deal at a hundred million. And then it goes to the CIO for a deal at 500 million. Okay. You know, these, these are the types of things that we expect. And if you're doing 2% of the fund, you go to the board. Um, and then the, the delegation frameworks get really smart when you talk about um, what's required for the delegation framework to be um, implemented. You know, like we need this data in place. We need these systems in place. The asset allocation framework needs to be in green instead of yellow or, or red. You know, these are the types of inputs that allow an organization to build a navigation model for the future that isn't reliant on constantly coming back to the board. And we have seen this a big influx to your point of the use of co-investments in portfolios, potential return driver. Billy, do you agree with he, what he said on the co-investment piece? Because I know that you've done some research here and a lot you've worked with clients on co-investment, kind of adding it to portfolios and that that governance piece on it. 
Yeah, a couple comments there. And, and actually, I think one of the more interesting things in the last couple of years has been beyond co-investments, the continuation funds that have been very popular in, in, in the last few years. Because there, in, in, in a lot of ways, the continuation funds are another form of co-investment. Um, and we've, we've had a lot of fund managers bring those vehicles to us and, and help clients get access to it. I think one of Ashby's points is one I made a number of years ago when some of our clients started thinking about doing co-investments. And that is that because of the dispersion of returns in private equity, what's really important is the, the quickness of the decision process as long as it's a valid decision process. If, if you can't make a decision when a good fund manager brings you something and, and I, you know, we had, you know, all kinds of quite a range of experiences with clients where in some cases staff can make the decision. In some cases, the, the head of private equity can make the decision. In some cases, it would require every investment decision to be put to a quarterly board meeting, um, which then kind of creates a scenario by which the fund managers, maybe not the, the better fund managers want to put up with that difficulty, that process. Uh, so the, having that decision process, again, as long as it's valid, you don't, you don't want to have people throwing cards down just to, to make decisions. As long as it's a good decision process, I think the quickness of it just really makes all the difference. And, and as we've seen in the fund managers we work with, the better fund managers have a lot of options. And the more barriers you put in front of them or more barriers you create for them to have to jump through in order to get your investment decision, the more likely you are to lose out on the, the better fund managers. So that, that that's critical. And like I said, we're seeing that a lot in the continuation funds right now um, where, you know, that, that's been a great path. It's been a really interesting solution over the last few years. And, you know, we'll see where we'll see where it plays out, but I think it's important to have, a good decision process, push the decision down. But this this ties into my earlier points too, is the learning function is critical here. You want to have, you need to have somebody that owns the decision, is incented to make the right decision, and is able to incorporate feedback into their decision process. Mm-hmm. So co-investments, continuation vehicles, those we have, seen as a big part of different portfolios. Another area that I want to touch on is ESG impact, DEI, however you want to say it, but that's another big thing that we have seen in portfolios today. And I was reading a report recently, um, State Street, they did this big survey and they found that three in five asset owners, so you know around 60%, want more private assets to make a positive and measurable contribution um, to sustainability or other ESG criteria. And so I'm, you know, in, I work with a lot of endowments and foundations. We're seeing a big push for more ESG and impact in portfolios. Just wondering if you guys have seen any great ways to do this, if you have any guardrails that we should all be aware of as a lot of investors are going down this journey. Yeah, I can, I can jump in there. I, I, I feel like these issues, um, are really insightful. Uh, in terms of helping to understand your portfolio. So first of all, like, why not get that data, that information about the sustainable development goals and how my portfolio affects it? So, so that's a measurement aspect that I would describe as like putting on a different pair of glasses of the optometrist. So you have your traditional glasses 
that you wear to see, you know, all the different risks, um, volatility, value at risk, all these kinds of things. And you take those glasses off and maybe these glasses are sunglasses and you put on the, you know, it's giving you the ESG um, kind of understanding of the portfolio. And and those are kind of long horizon risks in general. So you're, you're holding a long-term asset class. You're kind of stuck with these assets for 10 to 14 years in some cases. So isn't it useful to understand those long horizon risks? Um, at, at the CFA uh, Future of Finance Council, we've always called ESG pre-financial risk because it will be financial risk soon. It's just not being categorized as much today. So the first piece is getting that data, getting a, a thoughtful understanding of the portfolio. The second piece, I think, is private markets is really where you can drive impact. Um, you know, when you look at the public markets and you're like, all right, well, what am I investing in and what are the outcomes from those investments? It's harder to point and tell stories about how your investments have transformed the world, you know, through public market investing. You might point to Tesla and say, look, Tesla has made electric cars cool. And, and that's a pretty neato thing for the world. Um, but a lot of people see the private markets as a pathway to solutions and true impact investing. When you read like venture capital websites, it often reads like an impact investors website, like mission driven entrepreneurs trying to solve societies. Is like, is this founders fund or is this some impact investment fund? Turns out it's founders fund that talks like that. Um, on their website, you know, the talk literally talks about how founders that make $50 million are, have more money than they'd ever want. So they need that mission driven impact focus to continue to build a $5 billion company. And, and so that's why I think the private market is so interesting. And in terms of guardrails, I would say we need some experimentation right now and we need to, um, see how these organizations are using data and driving impact. I think we need measurement. I mean, this comes back to the thing I've been saying the whole time. We need far better data and measurement flowing from portfolio companies through yeah. to um, the limited partners. And just following up on Ashby's comment, I would, I would say that in my experience, the demand for the, those aspects exceeds the supply right now in the market. Um, and, but, but on the other side of that is, one of the reasons private markets fund managers are successful is they're, they're relatively smart people and they will adapt to what, what the clients are asking for. So while we may private markets may be not as advanced or sophisticated in the, these practices at this point, if LPs are telling them, this is what we want, they'll, they'll find a solution for it. Yeah, well, I've seen that. I spent a lot of time in, in energy investing for a portion of my career. And it's so interesting. Exactly at that point, the traditional oil and gas funds are now launching renewables or energy transition funds. And just to see that pretty big difference in what they're focusing on um, is an extreme example, but it is definitely happening. Well, I know we're coming up on time. And um, as we wrap up, we have covered a lot today. I want to boil it down and I want to give each of you one minute each to answer a last question. I'm going to start with you, Billy. You really kind of help us focus on the LP side, what we should be looking at. 
what is the number one thing that LPs should be including as part of every due diligence process based on what you have seen in the market? All in, I'm going to answer that in two ways. Uh, the first one is the way not to do it. Because what I've seen people do is, especially after years of experience, you learn what mistakes you've made in making some of your fund decisions. So you throw those questions onto the back of your, your, your DDQ, your due diligence questionnaire. So all of a sudden, at the end of the day, you have an 80-page due diligence questionnaire. Um, gives you a lot of answers, but not necessarily a lot of really good information about how to make how to improve your decision. The number one thing that's important to me, and again, I've been in this market for a couple of decades, is understanding the value creation process of the individual fund manager. That's the critical piece of of your evaluation. So sometimes it, it doesn't lend itself to necessarily adding another five or six questions. It lends itself to digging into the portfolio, spending time with the fund manager and understanding how they improve those companies. And the, and, and oftentimes, and you've, you've been in the market for a while too, rarely is it a linear process. Rarely do you go revenue increase 5% a year, right? It, oftentimes there are hiccups, there are problems along the way, there are personnel problems, there are product problems or market problems. So what you want to understand is how did they navigate them and what was the, the process they employed to make the decisions to finally get that company successful? And that doesn't work in questionnaires very well. That's knowing the fund manager well, it's understanding the portfolio and also understanding you know, one of the advantages we have as consultants is we see into a lot of different portfolios that other people don't. And that gives us the ability to help make guard our clients in making those decisions. And oftentimes, it, to to kind of cycle back to my original point, with small portfolios, you really have to make a, call, a judgment call of saying, was this a good decision process, or was this just because they they bet on the latest pets company? As you to the tag the tag into your you know because yeah. that that was all the rage for a while. Where everyone had a pets company. Everyone had a you know, everyone's got a, a crypto company in their portfolio, right? And everyone's got one of these. I got one of those. So is it the market or did they actually help that company develop along the path? And I think that to me is the critical part, the value creation process. And it seems so critical as well as a lot of people believe we are coming into a market downturn. And I know that was really a big difference maker between fund managers we saw succeed and come out the other side of the global financial crisis and the ones that didn't. Because if it was a market wave and not like true gritty, we step in, we fix companies. If there's a downturn, we know how to keep them afloat until there's a turnaround. I think that was such a difference in the success that we saw there. So I think definitely coming into this next market cycle, those questions are absolutely important. And Ashby, for you, one minute to you. I know you probably have a lot of great stories because you work with a lot of large institutional investors, which I'm sure is interesting. Um, what's the great story you can share with us? I think like the the really interesting things happening right now on the on the LP kind of asset owner side have to do with just putting new funds in business. So if you if you recall, like when we started this podcast, I said that. A lot of the LPs are concerned about alignment of interests and access. And one of the great ways to solve both those problems is to try to spin somebody out of an existing GP um, and anchor their fund. 
And, and I kind of was on my hobby horse about this for a long time saying, look, the greatest investors in the world are still in distress when they're starting their, their business, their first time fund. And it's really the only time they're in distress because once they're going, the performance is good. They've got li limited partners behind them. Good luck tr changing a hurdle or, you know, changing some term in that document at that point. But if you can spot those teams that are really crushing it and go talk to them about, hey, do you want to be your own GP? Are you sick of giving most of the carry to this figurehead um, over here? Um, and, you know, you'll find that for most of these people, that's in their life plan. You know, they, they, they do want to go start their business. And you're seeing that a lot now with, you know, pension funds coming together. And the, like the example is Constellation Capital. You have six pension funds that now are incubating and owning some of the GP, but they're not alone. Um, I'm, we were talking with lawyers here the other day. The hottest thing right now is for anchors to take ownership in GPs. It, that is just everywhere. And so that production function of private market returns does feel like it is shifting a little bit. And I love that anchor because if you're just chasing the third time funds, four time funds out there, you're going to pay up and that alignment and value may just accrete to the GP. So that that's what I see. That's the exciting. Yeah, I know. I always like to remind people every successful firm had a fund one. So it, exactly. you know, people go, oh, well, they're, they've been great for years. But yeah, they also raised a fund one at some point. And your point, Ashby, on the co-investment piece, I think that there's, along with anchoring, such an opportunity for investors to do pre-fund investments, which are essentially like a co-investment, but you're helping that GP establish a track record before they raise their first co-mingled fund. And I yeah. see an uptick in that, which I love. And I think more investors should be open to at least looking at those because that's an additive piece to a co-investment or a direct portfolio. Um, so I, I love those comments. Well, this has been a great session. Thank you both for staying around a minute in your answers. <laughs> um, as I close out, I hope everyone walks away from today with a more keen insight into the marketplace and you know, just some new tools that will help all of us get closer to that 100% certainty. Thank you to Ashby and Billy for joining me today. And of course, thank you to our listeners. If you'd like to learn more about anything we've discussed today, please contact us at ctci at mercer.com. I'm Amy Ridge, and thank you again for tuning in.